Psalm 119. And uh, we'll be looking at another passage here, another portion of this psalm today. But you know, there are some lessons in life that you have to learn the hard way. Right? Seems like that. Some things just have to learn the hard way. We kind of, we kind of, I think, have all experienced that. Maybe, maybe you have learned something. So, anybody care to share this morning a lesson that you learned the hard way in life? Anybody? A couple, Sarah. Okay, getting a ticket sometimes can be the the lesson learned the hard way about careful driving. Aria. Uh, Hard lessons to learn from that, right? But sometimes we learn those things the hard way. For, oh, yeah, Matthew. No, that's right. Uh, being a missionary kid, I didn't want to go the first time, but I had to be in mission field. Okay. Sure, sure, following the Lord. Sometimes it's hard to, to do that and to respond rightly. For me, one thing, and I could probably give you a whole list of them, but one uh, thing that I learned was that when you start to fall, don't put your hand out to catch yourself. That's a good way to get a broken bone. Been there, done that. I had to learn the hard way uh, to say no to uh, buying things when you don't have money. Going into debt is easy, but it's not fun. And getting out is hard. And I learned that. But there are a lot of spiritual lessons that we learn by experience too, right? Not just practical life lessons, although some of those. But there are spiritual lessons. And the psalmist this morning, what we're going to look at, is, is going to focus on some spiritual lessons that he learned the hard way. And that's the reality. Sometimes the lessons of life are learned the hard way. Now, uh, the, the psalmist learned these lessons by experience, but here's the good thing. The good news is he's sharing his experience with us so that we can benefit from the lessons that he learned. That means that we don't have to go through all of the same uh, difficulties that he went through in order to learn the lessons. If we'll hear him and pay attention and take counsel from him. But I would also say this, if it's already too late, if we've already gone down the road and we've already experienced some of these things, maybe we're in the middle of some of these experiences, we can take comfort from his example and from the wisdom that he shares with us today. And so I want to look at that. Uh, So let's begin there. Verse 49, Uh, verse 49, Psalm 119, and we're going to read down to verse 80. Remember the word to your servant upon which you've caused me to hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I keep your precepts. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. 
The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let, I pray, your merciful kindness be for my comfort according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood. But I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your testimonies. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Let's pray and ask God's help and blessing as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we come uh, once again to this beautiful uh, psalm, this grand uh, song of praise and lamentation and wisdom that is, that is uh, uh, preserved here in the pages of Scripture, Psalm 119. And Lord, we read these scriptures and we see the psalmist's heart as he pours out his heart to you, as he, as he prays, as he praises and sings. And Lord, I, I see and I know that as we read these scriptures that our own lives and our own experiences can be echoed here and we can see them uh, repeated here in these verses. And so I pray that you would help us to have tender hearts as we come to your word that uh, we might be receptive to hearing what you're saying to us. Help us to have hearts that are quick to respond, not slow, not dragging our feet, not delaying, but, but quick to respond and to deal with our, our sin and our failure to uh, repent and to trust you and to lean on you for strength and grace. I pray that you'd use your word today as I speak to bring comfort and challenge into our hearts. Lord, I pray that, that you would use me as your mouthpiece to proclaim this truth to your people. Lord, I pray that uh, each one of us would would leave here having drawn near to you and aligning ourselves with the truth that we might be obedient to it. We'll give you the praise and the thanks for what you're going to do here in our service. In Jesus' name, amen. This... This stanza from verse 49 to verse 56, the Zion stanza. Remember, Psalm 119 is an alphabetic acrostic. So every verse in this stanza begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But the focus here in this stanza is on remembering. You you could see that word. It occurs three times in verse 49 and again in verse 52 and in verse 55. It's a kind of a the key word, the, the central thread, this idea of remembering. And first, here the psalmist prays for Yahweh to remember the promises he has made. 
And right there at the beginning of the, of the stanza, remember the word that he has given. These promises have given the psalmist hope. And, and by that he means that the promises of God have caused him to anticipate something better in the future. Right? He, he's been given a promise, and because of the promise, he anticipates something good to come. He gets his hopes up. Right? He, he is, is expecting something. That's what promises do. They make us hope for something. They give us expectation. And, and what he is asking the Lord to do here when he says, remember your word, is keep his promises. That's what he's saying. Keep your promises. He's not worried that the Lord has lost track of them. Again, we've seen this throughout the Psalms on numerous occasions when uh, the psalmist speaks about or speaks to the Lord and says, remember this or don't forget that. It's not that, that we're concerned that God somehow is, is you know, getting old and tired and he kind of loses track of things the way old people do. Sorry, if, you're, if you lose track of things, even those of us who are younger still do that too, right? So it's not really an old person thing. But, but that's kind of the way we think of it, right? Well, we get older, we start losing track of things. And, and we might be tempted to think that way of God. But that's not what the psalmist is doing. He's not saying God is somehow becoming uh, you know, absent-minded. What he's saying is, God, keep your promises, right? Don't forget them. Don't turn away from them. Act on them. Keep them. Fulfill them. Now, last week we noted that, uh, that, that from the psalmist's perspective, and, and really this is true of everyone, every man or every woman, every child who trusts in the Lord, it is absolutely imperative that God keeps his word. His word has to be true. If he does not fulfill his promises, if he does not fulfill his word, then we are completely lost and our lives are wasted. Because, and and this is it, right? Because as Christians, as those who trust in the Lord, What that means is more than just that we come to church on Sunday. I realize for a lot of people, that's the extent of what they think of it means to be a Christian. But that's not true. To be a Christian is a lot more than just coming to church on Sunday and living the rest of our lives as though he did not exist. That's not Christianity. That's not faith. Whatever it is, it's not that. So... What do we do? What, is the, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to have faith? Well, we build our lives around the principles that are taught in the Word of God. Right? Everything in our life becomes structured around what God says in His Word. That's why it's so important for us to, to, to be in the Word of God. Because we have to know what Scripture says, what, what God expects. Tom was doing an illustration he was telling about in their Sunday school class. Some of you heard it this morning. A game with no rules. You heard that this morning. We, heard, we all heard it. They probably heard it down the block. The kids were pretty loud with no rules, right? A game with no rules. And it's kind of fun at first, but it, it doesn't end well. <laughs> and what do we have? We have in the scripture, we have guidelines. We have instructions from the Lord. And we as believers who, who trust in the Lord, we build our life according to those principles. We follow those instructions. That's kind of the point right? That, that, that we don't just say, oh, I believe in God, and then I go live however I want. No, we trust in Him, and then we obey. We follow. 
And so we build our lives around this. Right? We, we, we see this. And so what does it mean? It means because we've built our life on this, because we've invested all of our eggs in this one basket, all of the promises of God, everything is there. Because of that, if he fails to keep them, we lose everything. I was reminded by another pastor this morning uh, who shared uh, a, a line from the hymn Rock of Ages where the, where the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, says to the Lord that, that, that the Lord must save him or else he will die. And I said, that's it. That's the message. That's the message that we cling to. It's not like, well, God's my backup plan. If all these other plans don't work, he's kind of got my safety net. No, no, no. It's, I'm dying, so save me. Rescue me. That's, that's what it means to become a Christian. Everything is invested in him. Everything is hinging on him, keeping his promises. And we see this all throughout scripture. Think about examples. Abraham, right? He leaves his home and his family. Why? Because God promised him a son. So Abraham risks everything because God promised him a son. He believes the promise of God. David, you know, twice David could have killed Saul and become king. Twice. Why didn't David do it? The reason David didn't, didn't kill Saul was that he believed the promise of God. Samuel had anointed David that David would be the next king. And David believed the promise of God and refused to take matters into his own hand, trusting that God would somehow bring it about. He believed God's word, and therefore he didn't sin and commit murder. Daniel prayed three times a day, knowing that it was going to cost him his life, or expecting that it would, even though the Lord delivered him. But Daniel did that. Why? Because he believed in the promises of God's faithfulness, even in the captivity. He believed the word of God. Paul, we read in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gave up every benefit of being a leading Pharisee among the Jews. He turned his back on all of them. Why? Because he believed the promise of his own resurrection, just like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Everything Paul says hinges on that. If that's not true, if God's word isn't true about that, then everything falls apart and my whole life is wasted. There are lots and lots more in the Bible and throughout the history of, of, of the church who have given up everything in this life for the sake of the promises of God. And they built their lives. And the way that they built their lives demonstrated the incredible value they placed on the word of God. Again, this is, everything's riding on it here. If we, if we understand this, what it means to, to be a Christian, what it means to follow the Lord, everything is riding on it because we put everything here. We don't reserve anything back. We don't keep something back and go, well, I'm going to invest this, but I'm going to diversify over here just in case this Christian thing doesn't work out, just in case this church thing doesn't work out, just in case this Jesus thing kind of falls through. I've got this in the back burner. That's not how it works. It's all or nothing. I've got to trust Him with everything. And if He doesn't keep his word. I'm lost. And I've lost everything. That's the mindset of the psalmist here. And, and he is, is praying that God would keep his promises. Remember your word. Now, if I ask this question, is that how you live your life? 
every one of us, I think, is going to have to answer and say, no, not completely. But that ought to be the goal. That ought to be our, 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 our desire and what we strive for as believers, that we so trust Christ and so commit ourselves to him that everything is riding on him, keeping his promises to us. That ought to be the goal. Now, let's look at what the psalmist says because here what we see, and this is so important, he says this in, in that first verse of the stanza, remember the word upon which you've caused me to hope. But here's the thing. He takes comfort in the promises of God. And we learn this lesson to take comfort in the promises of God. Verse 50, he talks about that. This is not my comfort in my affliction, he says. And what is it? Your word has given me life, he says. So his comfort... When he's in affliction, when he's depressed and he feels beaten down. That's what verse 51 speaks about. Being derided. Having those who are opponents to him. Those who deride him and mock him and scorn him. When he's in this state, what does he do? He comforts himself by remembering the promises of God. Right? He comes back to what the scripture says. And he remembers the promises that God has made. And he comforts his heart. He doesn't turn away from God's law, but he remembers it and it consoles him. It's good to remember the things that God says, especially when, as believers, we get mocked for believing what the Scripture says. Because again, it's, it's a popular sport today to make fun of those you know, fundamentalist Christians who actually believe what the Bible says. Ha, 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 what rubes for believing all that nonsense. That's, that's sport today. But the truth is, instead of allowing that to drive us away from the Word of God, we need to allow it to drive us to the Word of God. To come back and remind ourselves of the promises of God. To remind ourselves of the truths that He's given us in His Word. That's where we find comfort when the world makes fun and mocks us and scorn and derides us for our faith. We need to trust the Lord more by coming to His Word. That's where people get it wrong. Again, the doubts come and, and uh, people begin to, to, to question their faith or they begin to mock it. And what do they do? They turn away from scriptures and they start looking for other explanations, right? Well, I want some proof. I'm going to go over to the scientific world and ask for some proof. Or when I go and ask the philosophers to give me some proof, some evidence, some reason here. And what are they doing? They're not going to the scriptures. They're going everywhere else. It's the wrong way to go. The psalmist says, when I'm mocked and derided by all these proud and arrogant boasters, I come back to the word of God. And I remind myself of the promises of scripture. I remind myself of the words that God has spoken. And I love that. That's the the psalmist here. This is the response of of, of the believer that when we are confronted with the, the mocking and the scorn of our faith, it ought to drive us back to the scriptures to study them more closely, to remind ourselves of all the things that God has said. Not abandon them and go, well, I'll have to find some proof of this somewhere else and see if I can find something else that's going to support the Bible. Because guess what? That unbelieving skeptic is never going to support the Bible. He's invested in the exact opposite. So you're not going to be able to go to him and find support for the Bible. It's not going to happen. It's a fool's errand. Now the psalmist here responds differently. When he's confronted with these proud, these ones who hold him in derision, he doesn't turn aside from the word of God. He reminds himself of what the scripture says. And he clings to it. And I think his reaction to the scoffers is kind of interesting. Verse 53, indignation has taken hold of me, he says. That word indignation literally means rage. It's a burning anger. 
He gets angry. Now, what is it that angers this believer in the Lord? What is it that angers this, this man who trusts in God? Well, he says here, indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Notice he's not angry because they make fun of him. He's not angry because they mock him and mistreat him. He's not angry because they are unkind to him. And from what we've read in the psalm so far, it's clear that they are. They're enemies, they're opponents, they hate him, they mock him, they scorn him. But he's not angry about that. What bothers him and what upsets him is that they dismiss God's word and refuse to obey it. That's the thing that really irritates him. (laughs) That's the thing that bothers him so much. He becomes fiery, indignant, angry because they forsake the law of God. They turn away from God's word. They want nothing to do with God and his word. And that angers him. His, 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 his emotional kind of um, outburst, if you will, here is all motivated by a desire that God and his word would be honored and followed. That's what his heart is. Now, interestingly enough, in verse 54, we see kind of his opposite reaction to that of these scoffers who don't want to do anything with God's law. What does he say in verse 54? He says, your statutes or your word have been my song. In other words, this is like the the theme song of my life is your word. That's what I sing about. that's, That's like the central focus of everything in my life. Your commandments and your promises, Lord. He says, these people dismiss it. They don't want anything to do with it. They mock it. I sing about it. It's, it's everything to me. It's the song in my heart when I wake up in the morning is the word of God. That's what I want to think about. That's what fills my heart and my mind. Knowing and loving God's word leads directly to knowing and loving God himself. You can see the progression here. In verse 54, he talks about the, song, the statutes of God being his song. So it's about God's word. But then in verse 55, I remember your name in the night. So meditating and remembering the truth of God leads him directly to God himself. I remember your name in the night. It's the the name of God, his character, his nature that he remembers. And then he says that in verse 56, this has become mine. I like the way the Christian Standard Bible translates this verse. It says it this way, this is my practice. I obey your precepts. I think it's a little bit stronger than the way the New King James translates it here. It gives us a little bit more of a sense of what he's saying. What he's saying is this has become my habit. This has become my practice. This has become my life. That I obey your law. That I obey your word. He's giving us a testimony here. And this is what's so important about this stanza. Because what the psalmist is saying here is that he has learned to love the word of God and to obey it. Right? It's become the central focus of his life, the theme of his songs, his comfort in times of affliction. It's his hope in dark times, and it's his guide all the time. And obeying God's word has become his, his routine, his habit of life. It's become his way of life. Remember, we talked about at the beginning of the psalm how he was, he was kind of echoing Psalm 1, the, the two ways to live, right? The, way, the, the path of the righteous man, the path of the wicked. And, and he's saying, I want the way of the righteous. I want the way. And now he's saying, Lord, you've given me that. You, you, this has become my way of, of life is to walk this way in obedience. 
You might say it this way. He's got a rock-solid faith. That's what he's testifying here. He's saying, even when I've got all these opponents and these people mocking me, I am committed to your truth, and I walk in this way. Enemies can't dissuade him from following the Lord. Their taunts don't make him afraid. He's not shaken. But here's the thing. It wasn't always this way. It wasn't always this way. In order to get to this point where his faith was was rock solid and unshakable, he had to go through some difficult times. He had to go through some hard times and learn the difficult lessons. And that's what we want to look at in the next stanzas because that's where he really goes here. So he's learned to trust the Lord, but how did he learn it? I love the way verse 57 begins. You are my portion, O Yahweh. When I read this uh, this week and I was thinking about this, the first thought that I had was Psalm 16 and uh, verse 5. That, psalm 16 might be my favorite psalm. That's probably why this came to my, to my mind because it's a psalm that I've gone back to a lot. But in Psalm 16, verse 5, David writes this, O Yahweh, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. And what is David saying in Psalm 16, verse 5? Uh, He's saying that I have the Lord, and because I have the Lord, I have enough. I have Him, and that's all I need. I have a good inheritance because I have the Lord. Now, for the Israelites, their inheritance was all connected to the land, right? Every family had their inheritance. But David says, listen, I don't care about that. What I have is the Lord, and that's enough. I have a good inheritance because I have Him. Even if I have nothing else, I have the Lord. And and here, the psalmist is echoing that. And maybe consciously, maybe he's intentionally borrowing from uh, Psalm 16 and verse 5 here. You are my portion, Lord. You are my inheritance. You are the, 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 that thing which I need. And you are enough. And the truth is, again, this is a lesson that's hard, but it's a lesson we should take, we should learn as well, to be content with God's provision. We should have the same testimony. Lord, you're my portion. I have enough. I have a good inheritance because I have you. Paul says that in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Then he goes on and he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? And what Paul is saying there essentially is this. God has already given us the most precious, priceless thing he could ever give us is his son. And if he's already given us the most precious, priceless thing, why would he deny us anything less that we need? Of course he's going to give us everything we need. He's already given us the most precious, valuable thing he could ever possibly give us. We have him. And therefore, we have enough. Paul is basically saying the same thing. You, Lord, you are my portion. You are my inheritance. You could put it this, we could say it this way. If you have the Lord, you already have everything. There's nothing more that you need because you possess the one who possesses everything. Of course, this assumes that we have a relationship with him. He's not just a vending machine who drops down gifts out of the sky He's not a genie in a bottle that we can rub the lamp and tell him our wishes. We have a relationship with him. 
We enter into fellowship with the Lord by, by faith in Jesus Christ who died for us. And when we trust in him and we enter into this relationship, there's an ongoing uh, a fellowship that we experience with him. We trust him. He provides for us. And so that's why if you notice, I didn't look at the second part of verse 57. He says, you're my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. There's a, an assumption here of ongoing obedience. Right? He's the master, we're the servants. And it's the master's job to provide for the servants. It really is. The master has a responsibility to make sure his servants are taken care of and provide for them. But guess what? The servant has a responsibility to obey the master. And that's pretty much the way the Bible describes our relationship with God. Yes, he has a responsibility to provide for us. And he does. We have a responsibility to obey. Verse 57 kind of encapsulates that. Lord, you're my portion. You've given me everything I need and everything that's good. And I have committed to obeying you. To be an obedient servant. But the context here is important. The psalmist, according to the very next verses, sought the Lord's favor. Speaks about that in verse 58. But this occurred after a time of personal reflection. You see, you notice here in verse 59, um, especially, he talks here about thinking about his own ways. What is he talking about there? He's talking about examining his life. Examining his way of life, the, the pathway of life, his obedience. And as he examines his life in light of the word of God, he examines his values, he examines his behaviors. And what does the psalmist find when he examines his life in light of the word of God? Well, I think the implication here, I thought about my ways and turned my feet implies that he found when he did that, that his ways weren't what they should be. He began to examine his ways and realized, I have gotten off the path, right? The Lord laid out this path for me, but I have disobeyed. I've gotten off the path somewhere. And when I thought about that, when I, when I, when I examined that, I realized I wasn't where I ought to be. Does that ever happen to you? When you read the Word of God and then you think about your own life, you read the scriptures and you meditate on your life and you see things that don't really fit what you say you believe. Sometimes we're, we're quick to dismiss that. Well, that's out of character. That's not really who I am. Maybe it is. Maybe it's a character flaw that needs to be addressed. Something where we've gone astray, something where we've wandered off. You find areas of inconsistency or even outright disobedience where you know what you're supposed to do, but you're not doing it. That happens to all of us if we take the time to read the Word of God and think about how we're living. Sometimes we just don't take the time to do that. We're so busy and we're so overcommitted with stuff that we don't ever stop to think about what God's Word says and what that really means. And so we kind of don't get this because we just go through things so quickly. But when we stop and we think about the Scriptures, we realize that we're out of step. But the real question isn't, do you ever get out of step with God? Because the answer to that question is yes, for all of us, that's always a concern. But the real issue is this, what do you do when you realize you're not living in line with God's word? 
that's where the psalmist really kind of hits on it here. Look at the second half of verse 59. So the first part of the verse, he says, I thought about my ways, but what did he do about it? He says, and turned my feet to your testimonies. What's the psalmist saying here? He had wandered from the path of truth. And when he saw that, when he realized that, what did he do? Immediately, he turned his feet to get back on the path. He repented. Do you repent when you're confronted with your sin? Do you repent when you see what the Word of God says and you realize that's not what you're doing? That you're not living that way? That you've gone off the path? Do you stop and go, you know what? I better get right back on this. I better turn my feet to get back on the way of right and get back on the way of truth. I better turn back to these things. Maybe it's not directly in the pages of Scripture. Maybe it's a brother or sister who comes to you and confronts you and says, I'm seeing some things that concern me here. Do you repent? Do you acknowledge that, yeah, I've gotten off the path and I want to turn my feet to get back on the path? That's what the psalmist says he does here, and I think that's so important because here's what we need to understand. In this psalm, we've got the psalmist and we've got his opponents. And the only difference between them, as far as I can tell, is that his opponents remain arrogant and refuse to follow God's path. They don't return. They keep going on their own way. But he, when he realized that he had followed them off the path, he immediately turned to come back and hurried to get back right with God and obey his word. To, have a, to give you a good negative example of this in Scripture is Lot. You remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? Lot and his family lived in the city of Sodom. Remember the angels that the Lord sent came to the city and they actually came to Lot's house and they sat down with he and his wife and his kids and they said, listen, this city is about to be destroyed and you better get out of here because if you don't leave, you will not survive. And what did Lot and his family do? Did they get up and go, okay, we better get going? No, they dragged their feet. They dragged their feet. And, the, and, and Genesis uh, 18 tells us that the angels literally had to grab them by the hand and take them out of the city. They had to be carried out of the city. They had to hold their hands and walk them out of the city because they wouldn't leave. They were dragging their feet even as judgment from God was falling down in the city. And as they're leaving, of course, you know what Lot's wife does. She turns back. And why? Because she longs for this city that's being destroyed. And in her longing, she reveals this this idolatrous heart and she's turned to a pillar of salt and judgment. We see none of that here in the psalm. What does the psalmist say? He says, not only does he say in verse 59, I turned my feet, but he says in verse 60, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. When I realized I'd gotten off, I got right back as soon as I could. I came back as quickly as I could. I immediately sought to obey. I repented immediately. The psalmist gives us an example here, a great example of the believer who is confronted with sin, realizing that we have sinned, and our, our, our prompt and our immediate response to return to the Lord. I was struck by that this week as we were doing our Bible reading with the kids. 
following the, 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 the schedule that's on your calendar. And we were reading in the prophet Isaiah. Or I'm sorry, well, we were reading Isaiah, but then we were reading prophet Amos. And in Amos, um, I believe it's chapter 4, the prophet, the Lord says through the prophet to the people of Israel, seek me and live. And he says it twice. Seek me and live. And what we find as we go a little bit further on in the book is he says they didn't seek me. You refuse to seek me. You refuse to turn to me. There's no repentance. There's no turning back. The psalmist here shows us what, it's, what, what the believer does when we're confronted with our sin. Do we, do we seek the Lord and return to Him? The second half of the stanza here, he speaks about the pull of the wicked. Verse 60, um, 63, he, t- he talks about that his desire is not just to, to be with those who are uh, wicked, talks about their, their, their cords in verse 61, but in verse 63, he talks about those that he desires to be with. The kind of company he seeks out are those who want to obey the Lord. They're his companions. Because here's the thing, the psalmist is saying, you know what, I realize I got off the path. I realize I was going with these people off the way. And they're scorners. They don't want to listen to God's word. But I come back to the scripture, so I come back to the way. And he says here in verse 63, I'm a companion of those who fear you. I look for people who fear the Lord. Those are the people I want to be companion with. Those are the people I want to walk on the path with. People who fear the Lord. I think there's an important lesson here about surrounding ourselves with others who want to follow the Lord rather than those who mock and scorn His Word. I'm not saying that uh, we should cut off all contact with unbelievers. That would, is not the conclusion we should come to here. Jesus uh, and Paul both suggest, uh, repudiate that idea. However, we need to make a conscious, regular effort to be around God's people for fellowship and encouragement. You ought to do everything in your power to be here and take advantage of the opportunities to get together with the people of God. You should. We got services here Sunday morning and Sunday night now, Wednesday night. We have activities throughout the month, the different times of fellowship and and, and Bible study and prayer and all that. And you should do whatever you can to be a part of that. Not because there's some rule that says you have to attend church every service in order to be godly. You know, they, some people talk about three to thrive and all that kind of stuff. Listen, there's, not a, there's no like list you've got to check off. Well, I came to my church services this week. But the point is that this, like, if you understand what the psalmist is doing here, the psalmist is saying, I want to be with those people who are committed to following God. I want to be on the path with them. They're my companions. They're the people I want to spend time with. They're the people I want to be around. We need help and we need encouragement from other people who are also going the same way that we are going, following the Lord. That's why we need to do that. That's why we need to be committed to being a part of things as much as we can in the fellowship of God's people because we need it to help us stay on the path. I love verse 64. He concludes the stanza with, because really, verse, this verse really gives us the basis for his hope. Because here's the thing. When we were reading Amos and I was talking to the kids about it, I was asking them some questions. And I said, you know, the prophet says here to the children of Israel, seek, seek me and live, the Lord says. I said, but in the same chapter, the Lord is saying, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to crush you, I'm going to do all these terrible things. I said, why on earth would they seek the Lord if he says, I'm going to destroy you? 
you know, would you voluntarily be like, okay, you're angry with me. You're going to punish me. I'm going to, like, does it, do, do we, when we're, when we're kids, do we do that? Do we like, go to dad because I've done something wrong. I'm going to go to dad. I'm going to tell him. He doesn't know yet, but I'm going to tell him what I did wrong so that he can punish me because he's going to be angry with me for doing that. Do we volunteer for that? No. But I said, let's understand. The, the implication here is not go to God to be punished. The implication is go to God in repentance. Seek mercy. That's what God is saying. He's inviting them to come and seek his mercy. Now, the psalmist says here in verse 64 that there's a reason that we can go to the Lord and seek mercy when we've gone astray. There's a reason that we can expect that he would forgive us. There's a reason we can expect that he would take us back after we've wandered from the path. And what is the reason? Well, he says it right here. The earth is full of the mercy of Yahweh. Mercy here is that that word hesed. We've talked about that numerous times. God's covenant faithfulness, his loyal love. He will not abandon his people. He will not abandon his promises. And because of that, we can come back to him. We can turn back and know that he will receive us. He will forgive us. He will embrace us again. That's why the the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament is so powerful because the father embraces his son when he comes back. And the Father welcomes him back. Why? Because the Father is full of compassion and full of mercy. And the psalmist says, the earth is full of your mercy, Lord, so I know that I can turn back to you and you will receive me. Remember what he said back in verse 49. God's word caused him to hope, to have confident expectation. And it's the mercy of the Lord, his said, his faithful love that makes his word secure. The psalmist could repent and return to the Lord and have reason to hope that his sins would be forgiven and he would be restored because Yahweh is always faithful to keep his word. The whole earth is full of his loyal love. This is a wonderful truth. This is something we need to meditate on. That the world, the whole earth is full of his mercy, of his compassion, of his tenderheartedness toward us as sinners. That he welcomes sinners who come back to him in repentance. That's exactly why I had Edward read Luke 15 this morning. There is joy in the presence of the angels. If you notice that, it doesn't say the angels sing for joy. It says there's joy in the presence of the angels. By the way, my personal opinion of that, what it's saying is God rejoices and the angels watch. When a sinner repents, there's joy in the presence of angels. When a sinner repents, because God wants the sinner to repent. The earth is full of his mercy. That's what the psalmist says. That's why I came back to you, he says, because I knew that you were merciful. Because I remembered your word. Wow, there's a lot here that's good to meditate on. But I want to look at the next two stanzas here in a couple of minutes because we're going to try and go quickly. But I think they affirm what we've already seen. The psalmist is, is going to kind of reiterate and give us a little more depth on what we've already seen. The psalmist has gone astray from the Lord. That we've already seen. He is restored to the path of obedience because of God's mercy and faithfulness to keep his word. The Lord is faithful to keep his promises. And so notice what he says in the next stanza. You have dealt well with me. You've dealt well with your servant. The Lord does not mistreat us. Even when we find ourselves in the midst of trials and afflictions, get this, we can say God is good. Even in the middle of afflictions. Why? 
Notice what the psalmist does. He says it in verse 65 and following. He says that, that the Lord has been good. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Isn't that the truth? Most of us can probably relate to the hymn writer who wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Do you see the goodness of God in your trials and your afflictions? He is good. And He does good. That's verse 68. You are good and you do good all the time. And he echoes it again in verse 71 when he says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. What kind of testimony is that? I mean, do any of you really want to say, I'm glad that God brought this terrible trial into my life? Certainly not when the trial is happening. That's not usually how, we're not usually capable of having that response in the middle of it. But if we respond rightly, if we return to the path of truth, if we, if we see God using the trial to bring us back into fellowship with Him and, and in a greater conformity with His Word, then we can say God was good to afflict me because in doing so, He's teaching me to understand His Word. This kind of instruction from God is really precious. God brings us through the crucible of pain and suffering in order to teach us to trust Him and follow His Word. We would never choose that. If we could see it coming, we would never choose to go through it. We'd find a way around it. We'd do whatever we could, but the Lord knows what's best for us. And most importantly, He's always good to us, the psalmist says. So He doesn't take us around the trial. He brings us through it. So that when we're going through the trial, he can instruct us in the truth. All throughout this stanza here, the psalmist speaks about the Lord's instruction. Teach me. Teach me. Teach me, he says over and over again. Instruct me. Help me to learn. You've taught me. He's confessing that in the midst of this trial and affliction, the Lord has used it to instruct and teach him. But the real question is, will you and I be instructed? Or will we be stubborn, stiff-necked, refuse to learn the lessons that God is teaching, refuse to learn the truth that God is, is, is seeking to infuse into our heart and our life through the trial of affliction? Too often, that's exactly what we do. We don't profit from affliction We never get to the point where we say it was good because I was afflicted. Because before I was afflicted, my heart was wandering from God. But now that I've been afflicted, the Lord has brought me back and He's teaching me to follow Him. So here's another hard lesson. Recognize the value of God's correction, of His discipline. The Lord uses trial and affliction in order to instruct us and guide us in the way we ought to go. And the psalmist says, verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. It's priceless. This instruction that we receive when we go through trial and affliction. God's discipline is not intended to punish us. Please understand that that is so vitally important for you to understand. When God disciplines us as His children, He's not punishing us because He's angry with us. 
He is using discipline to restore us so that we can once again be useful to him and then he's training us to do his will. We often have a wrong view of who God is. He's not an angry old man up in heaven throwing lightning bolts at us when we step out of line. The psalmist here pictures God for us as a loving father who corrects us and guides us back into alignment with the truth. He loves us. He knows what's best for us. And we need to submit to his will. That's what our lesson is. We need to learn to simply submit to what he wants in our life. But his purpose goes way beyond just us. And that's where that yod stanza in verse 73 to 80 really kind of becomes, uh, comes in focus here. He speaks there in that stanza of those who fear you in verse 74. And again in verse 79, he talks about those who fear you. It's a community. There are other people who also, like the psalmist, fear the Lord. And, the, and in his life, and his testimony is going to serve as an encouragement to those others. When they see him, not because of his sin, not because of his failure, but because he trusted in the word of God. He characterizes, verse 75, he characterizes God's treatment of him there. Your judgments, he says, are right, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Again, he didn't look back at the trial and say, God, you mistreated me. God, you were mean to me. He says, you afflicted me in faithfulness. He went through this time of testing and trial and now he understands that the Lord was at work and he remained faithful to keep his promise. What was his promise? That he forgives the sinner who repents. That's a promise from God. The psalmist claimed that promise and he experienced forgiveness from God and restoration to obedience and fellowship. The emphasis on verse 79, though, the the first part here talking about those who fear him being encouraged because they see God's faithfulness and the psalmist's faith. But verse 79 is a little bit different. The psalmist really sees his life in verse 79 as a beacon. He says this, that those who fear, let those who fear you turn to me. Right? He's saying, I'm going to be a beacon for those who fear you to come, to gather together and follow the Lord. So his prayer changes here. What he says essentially is this, Lord, hold me up as a beacon to others to gather together anybody that wants to follow you and follow your word. And so he understands here this lesson that God's purpose in his life extends beyond just his own spiritual walk, but it also, it also is, is mediating God's grace to others and, and calling them to faith. He has a role in building up others in the faith. He's a disciple-making disciple, if you want to go back to Matthew 28. Right? He is interested not just in his own walk, but also seeing others gather to him who also are going to walk in obedience to the Lord. Now, again, this is important. He's not putting himself up on a pedestal here saying, well, I want everyone to look at me. So God, put me up in a place where everybody can see me. No. What he's saying here is, 
God, this is your plan. This is your purpose. You go all the way back to verse 73. He talks about the fact that, God, you made me. Your hands fashioned me. This is part of your plan and your purpose. You created me for this. His desire is to display God's faithfulness, not his own. He's not going to boast of himself. Oh, look at what a great guy I am. What he's going to say is, I'm a sinner, but God saved me. And look at what God has done in my life. God is with me and he's guiding me and, he's, and he'll do the same for you. And he's calling people to that kind of walk. And I think it's strengthened here by what he says in verse 80 because in verse 79 he says, let me be a banner. Call all those people who fear the Lord to come and gather together. But then what he says in verse 80 is important. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. You see, even as the psalmist is asking for God to give him a platform, a platform which he can use to encourage others to walk in faith, he recognizes his own weakness. He recognizes his own tendency to fail. And so he prays, even in the midst of that, he prays for grace. Let my heart be blameless. He realizes this is not something he can do on his own. Only a fool would set himself up as an example for others, thinking that he can show them how to live the life of faith without pleading for God's grace to guide and protect his heart. God is good. The same faithful love which allows us to repent of our sins and return to him knowing that He is going to forgive us and restore us, it also gives us hope that He will guide us and He will keep us blameless regarding His Word. This morning, will you trust in Him? Will you depend on Him? Will you take comfort in His Word? And will you hope in Him? I trust that you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the lessons that you taught the psalmist. He went through some difficult times. He experienced uh, oppression and opposition, but really before that, he experienced the temptation of sin and the power of sin to draw us away. And I think that's an experience that we all probably share. We've all experienced that before, that being drawn away and, and wandering away from what we know we ought to do, finding ourselves sometimes having gone quite a ways off the path of what was right, almost before we realized it. And yet we see the psalmist's example. He didn't harden his heart. He didn't stiffen his neck. He repented. He turned his feet as quickly as he could. He got back on the path of right. He turned back to you. And because of your mercy, and your unfailing love, he was received and restored. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have that same experience that as we realize that we've sinned, we realize that we've gone away and, and we've wandered astray, that we would hurry back to you. Not delay a moment, but seek your face as the merciful and loving Father who, who loves and longs to restore us and welcome us back into fellowship. And then let us trust you to guide us and keep us in the path of right, that we can be an encouragement and a help to others along the way. Not because we're better 
Christians or because we've gone through these experiences and we've learned these lessons that, that somehow we're wiser and no more. No, but because we're, we're testimonies of your grace and of your faithfulness. Use us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.